Welcome back to South African Border Wars with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 110, and peace moves are afoot. However, before that, there was going to be a truly shocking incident for the SADF. When we left off last episode, the Cubans and the Angolans were gearing up to face another invasion by 61 Mac and Forsyth. Operation Excite, as it was to become known. But for once, the Cubans had decided that they'd seized the initiative and were about to launch a two-pronged assault towards the South Africans from Zangongo. Just a quick recap. 61 Mac had arrived in the Eastern Theatre with a tank squadron, four motorised infantry companies from 3G Battalion, including the anti-tank troop in four Rattle 90s and four more ZT3s. There were three motorised companies from 101 Battalion in Caspers, one motorised company each from 1 Parachute, 202 and 701 Battalions who were in Biffles. The SADF artillery support was significant, a battery each of G5s, G2s, Valkyrie rocket launchers and 120mm mortars. This was Task Force Zulu under command of Colonel Michael Delport. The South Africans had been building an approach ramp up to the Kalkwe Dam, which allowed the Ulifants and the Rattles to cross over for the invasion. Ostensibly, the plan was to flush out the SAM's six missile stations, which were based around Tetipa, then hit them with artillery, but also push the Cubans back from the dam, which provided water and power to Vumberland. It was a key point in the war. The SA Air Force had an interesting ruse in mind, and more about that in a moment. So on the 16th of June 1988, Commandant Mike Muller began moving the artillery across the low-level bridge at Kalkwe to deploy eight kilometres further northeast, where there was some tree cover to protect them from the MiGs. This bridge could take the weight of the guns, but not the tanks. They had to cross the Kunini River via the earth ramp and the dam wall road. Muller set up his forward HQ in the thick bush eight kilometres north of the dam, Three 120mm mortar teams moved to around 12 kilometers south of Tachipa, within range of the Cuban outpost to the southwest of the town. Close by, two 3-2 battalion companies would carry out missions towards the town, protected by the mortars. This was Swapo territory, and locals hated the SADF and created as much trouble for them as possible, including beating on drums and pots as alarm signals that 3-2 battalion's wreckies were passing by, led by Major Pierre Franken. On one occasion, we had to pass a horse at night, and we knew there was a Fapla patrol lying up in a dip just to our left, he told Fred Bridgeland. The horse whinnied and ran off. People began to charge around behind the wreckies. In the dark, Fapla troops passed them. But they didn't see us, he said. The unfriendly residents were sending messages to the Angolan army and the Cubans. By Wednesday, 22nd of June, one of the forward 3-2 battalion reconnaissance platoons reported something of interest. A massive column of dust from the north, a large column, was heading south. The Cubans appeared to be on the move. Luckily, the field engineers had completed the giant earth ramps up to Kalkwedam, and Muller moved the Ulifans and his main force across that night. They were designated Combat Group Charlie. Muller had broken up his force into three sections, Combat Team 1 with the Rattle 90 Squadron, two mechanized infantry platoons, six Rattle 81s as the main group, that was the unit centre within 12 kilometres of Techipa. Combat Team 2 of Mechanised Infantry Company, three Rattle 90s and six Rattle 81s were deployed four kilometres south of Team 1. And Combat Team 3 with a tank squadron, four Rattle ZT3s and two 3-2 battalion infantry companies were to protect Muller's HQ and another Mechanised Infantry platoon was sent about six kilometres south of them. On the 23rd of June 1988, reconnaissance units reported a heavy Cuban artillery bombardment ahead of the dust cloud. It appeared an attack force was heading south. 
and was eventually spotted on the 24th by members of 3-2 Battalion. Reckes also saw Cuban columns moving south from Techipa towards Calque. This stop-start advance, the technique preferred by the Russians. Bombard, move, dig in, bombard, move, dig in. There appeared to be a two-pronged assault underway. Things were going to move along at a steady clip from here on. The Cubans and FAPLA forces heading out of Zangongo were part of a two-pronged plan, and this one was heading to attack SADF units at Cuamato. 201 Battalion, with elements of rattles and mortars, stopped that advance and the occupation of the town, and the Cubans retreated back to Zangongo. Brigadier Chris Serfontaine, who was commanding Sector 1-0 in Novumberland, did not know exactly what the Cubans were up to, but it was clear from Reiki's intelligence something big was going on. They'd moved into the southern town of Chichipa in large numbers, along with at least 100 tanks and some of the latest military radar and missile tech. They'd shown their hand by trying to shoot down the Impalas and a Bosbok spotter plane. They were clearly aiming at the strategically important Kalkwe Dam. Now the SAF force conducted their clever trick. At last light on the 26th of June, a sortie of Impala took off from Undangwa Air Force Base to simulate a bombing run onto Chipa, and the Cubans took the bait. It was Sunday afternoon, and the SADF thought that the enemy would be resting, although that was not the case. Castro had already ordered the two simultaneous assaults towards Dam and from Zangongo to Kwamata, so the Cubans were very much wide awake. It was just before dark. The SAF force was betting on the Cubans keeping their MiGs on the ground. They didn't like to fly at night. Once the Impalas were picked up by the Cuban radar, just as they crossed the cut line, the South African planes climbed, as they would normally do for a standard bombing run. Instead, the G-5 battery inside Angola and a second gun emplacement at Ruakana released weather balloons that were dragging foil tails. These, they hoped, would be picked up by the radar. Then the Impalas dove to just above ground level, and the trick worked. The Cubans launched half a dozen of these SAM-6 missiles towards the balloons. The artillery observers spotted the SAM launch sites and sent the coordinates to the G-5s, the G-2s, the mobile rocket launchers, and the 120mm mortars. A six-hour barrage began that battered to cheaper from the south, with the enemy responding in desultory fire at first. They managed only ten rounds in response while taking heavy casualties around the HQ. Their communication links were severed for some hours, and 3-2 Commander Colonel Jan Hochart declared himself satisfied. Job done. But things are never that simple, because they had also hoped that the Cubans would send out their armour in order to be ambushed by Task Force Zulu. That was Colonel Mike Delport's artillery group. The Cubans were apparently too shaken to respond immediately. That was going to change rapidly, as 3-2 Battalion Veteran Lieutenant Titi de Abreu was to find out. His platoon of 36 men had led an artillery observer into position only two kilometres southeast of Techipa, and it was he who identified the SAM-6s. Moments before the artillery had let rip, they had moved further east and come across a section of Cuban tanks. Further afield, Fidel Castro was apoplectic. Despite all his hardware and 10,000 men in the Eastern Theatre, the SADF had the gall to launch another invasion straight at his second most heavily protected town in southern Angola after Quito Cuanavali. In the early hours of the morning of the 27th of June, Castro sent a signal to General Sintra. We must respond to today's artillery attack against the Chipa, the Cuban leader railed. We feel the first step must be a strong air attack against South African camps, military installations and personnel in Calque and the surrounding area. He said the bombing must avoid targeting civilians, but that the Cuban pilots should be on the lookout for artillery in particular. 
This was going to have implications for a section of eight sized soldiers, as you'll hear. The SADF had grabbed the tiger by the tail, and the Cubans set off in three mechanized columns with 600 men in each, supported by at least 35 tanks. They were heading straight towards Calque, and would reach the dam at about the same time that their MiGs arrived. They were hoping to overrun the SADF and finally seize the strategic target. At about that time, 3-2 Battalion Lieutenant Titi D'Abreu had been caught in open ground further southeast by the tanks. He radioed Commandant Hochart and said within a few minutes his men would be overrun. Hochart asked for coordinates and hit the area with his G5s, buying the platoon a few minutes to scurry away. But D'Abreu began to run into more tanks that Castro had ordered south along with the 1,800 troops of 50 Division and his platoon was in big trouble. When he radioed HQ with the news that there were so many tanks in this area, the signaler said it must be South African tanks the Ulifants had already crossed into Angola. The veteran de Abreu knew a T-54 or 55 when he saw it, and responded curtly that these were Russian and they needed help. De Abreu and his men were caught in the middle of open country, flat, dotted with sparse vegetation, at least three kilometers in all directions around them. He split his men into two groups. He led one, his sergeant the other. Some of the men were armed with RPG-7s and they wanted to stand and fight, but it was against at least a dozen tanks they had no chance. Back in Roacana, Jan Hochart was monitoring the situation on the radio. He thought his friend of many years was a goner. In a desperate attempt to save the platoon, Hochart ordered an artillery strike which was virtually right on top of De Abreu, a sweep-and-search bombardment. Somehow the G5 shells missed the fleeing 3-2 soldiers, but they'd bought the men just enough time and after hours of running, they escaped the T-54s. Luckily for De Abreu and his 36 men, because at this very moment, Mike Muller ordered the artillery back south. He didn't want them trapped. Muller then picked up the distant sound of engines to the north, as he sat in his HQ after he'd radioed the order to pull back. He knew the 3-2 battalion was out there and would give an early warning. Or perhaps it was his artillery gunning their engines. He wasn't sure. It wasn't his artillery. A 3-2 battalion section had indeed spotted the enemy tanks and they were frantically trying to radio Muller, but their radio had failed. While the South Africans were still unaware of the extent of the Cuban assault coming towards them, the medium-sized force of a mechanized infantry company of 12 Rattle 20s from 61 Mech, together with 3-2 battalions anti-tank troop and 8 Rattle 81s were operating north of Dam. This column was led by Major André Vermeulen with Major Hannes Nortmann in charge of the anti-tank rattles. Early in the morning of the 27th, around 9am, the column ran slap-bang into the forward Cuban assault group. It was an undulating grassy landscape, and they were descending a northern slope of a hill towards thicker bush on the valley floor. The plan was to emerge and creep up the southern slope of the next rise. As the rattles moved into the bush at the bottom of the dip, a Cuban soldier suddenly stood up and fired an RPG-7 from point-blank range, around 25 metres away, hitting a Rattle 90, which blew up, its armaments exploding. By some kind of miracle, the crew survived, leaping out before the ammunition went off. There were armoured cars in the bush with Fapla and Cuban infantry. This was now a critical situation. A company of T-54 tanks shot over the top of the nearest hill, joining the infantry, and Major Nortman knew this was a large force. It just kept coming. There were a lot of Cuban tanks, 26 BMP-2s, he said afterwards. These were armed with Saga anti-tank missiles. The Cubans were carrying RPG-7s. They were very aggressive. This wasn't the FAPLA groups of the early 80s, wilting under attack. This was a well-trained and motivated infantry deploying excellent fire and movement skills. 
The South Africans were completely outgunned, but Nortman was thinking fast. Because his Ratl ZT-3s were in a bush-covered valley, they couldn't fire their missiles, but they could move quickly. It was now up to the Ratl 90s to pit themselves against the tanks, and these sped towards the T-54s, as well as two ZU-23 guns on tracked armoured chassis alongside several trucks. The Ratl machine gunners opened up on the Fapla and Cuban infantry, then one of the T-54s got a shot off with its 100mm gun that hit another Rattle 90, killing the commander, Lieutenant Mili Maiden. He was 19. Mike Muller ordered the Ulifan tanks to head towards Nortman and from Mueller. It was a desperate situation. Nortman by now had been wounded in the neck and his hand by shrapnel, but he continued fighting. Then the Rattles hit a T-54. It brewed up and a group of Cuban troops on the back were killed. The two 23mm guns and a small number of the trucks were also burning, the Cubans began to break off contact. The Rattle 81s, which carried the mortars, had fired up to 500 rounds, it was claimed later, one of the reasons the Cubans began to wilt. But they fought on still, as the SADF tried to remove Meiring's body from the Rattle, along with the wounded. It was a furious battle. The Ulifans finally arrived, and the Cubans retreated before the South African tanks with their 105mm guns. Back in his HQ, Muller realized that something out of the ordinary was going on with the Cubans. This was a major assault force, and they were also operating extremely aggressively. They had a target and a plan. This was not the usual exploratory force. It was on a mission, and he knew full well what that mission must be, to take Calcre Dam. So he ordered 61 Mech to consolidate, but not to follow the Cubans. It was a wise decision. Close to 100 tanks could be deployed by the Cubans, and opposing these were a handful of Ulifants and Rattles. The result of a follow-up operation would not have gone South Africa's way. Two Cuban tank squadrons began to move, attempting to outflank their SADF forward units, targeting the withdrawing 61 mech from both sides. But the SADF artillery once again was brought to bear, and the Cuban outflanking maneuver stopped. 61 mech was now zigzagging south for several hours, keeping the enemy in sight. The Cubans were everywhere, and 3-2 battalion kept up a constant fire on these companies, holding them back. Then a third column of Cubans were spotted, along with the other two flanking groups, but a targeted bombardment by the South African artillery hit two of these transport vehicles. This was very much an SADF retreat now, and Brigadier Serfontaine gave permission for Muller to set up a compact front on the high ground just 10 kilometers north of Kalkwe Dam. Last stand. It was the South Africans' turn to try and dig in in a defensive position, but they were definitely facing a much stronger force on the march towards them. It was better armed and ominously, the enemy controlled the air war. The Cubans were coming. It was 3 p.m. on the 27th of June 1988, when the first South Africans spotted eight MiGs, two flying top cover, six flying low. Muller radioed a warning to his HQ. Jan Hochart, who was sitting in tactical HQ in Rakana, picked up a second call from his own hilltop observer, who spotted the MiG-23s on their way to Kalkwe Dam. He radioed a warning back to base in Oshikati and sprinted out, spotting eight MiGs turning over Ryokana, the six low-level aircraft leveling out south of the river near Kalkwe Dam. Later, SA Air Force Commander Dick Lord spoke of this attack as very different from the previous inept performances of the Angolan Air Force. Their attempts at high altitude to bomb the South Africans during operations like Modular, Hooper and Packer. This MiG attack was led by skilled Cubans, an academic attack, he called it. Sixteen bombs were dropped, and six hit the target. Furthermore, the pilots were flying in such a way that the South African air defences were almost useless. 
The two top cover were looking out for SAA Force interceptors, while the six others hugged dirt roads at only 300 feet until they reached Rokona, where they screamed over the airfield, turned and lined up in pairs southwest to northeast along another dirt road on the South African side. The first pair overflew the dam at about 1,000 feet to acquire the target, climbed and called in the other four MiGs. These dived straight towards the dam wall in pairs, then leveled out in a kind of cross-angled attack, first from southwest to northeast, then directly east to west. Each plane dropped two 250-kilogram parachute-retarded bombs on each pass, and just because they could, they slowed right down to ensure a hit, firing their 23mm cannon at the same time. Six of the 16 bombs hit the dam wall, damaging the structure. Two SADF troops on the wall were caught by both the bombs and the MiG's cannon fire. One was cut up by the flying concrete and shrapnel. The second leapt off the wall, falling 15 meters to the sandy ground below, spraining his ankle, but the adrenaline was flowing and he managed to run to safety despite his injury. Then, just to rub it in, one of the Cubans in his MiG-23 executed a victory roll as he sped from the dam, reminding the South Africans that they had been caught totally unawares. The MiGs wheeled about and turned for a second attack, sweeping in and firing their 23mm cannon. The SADF anti-aircraft battery had woken up and opened fire in turn, a simple 20mm hand-aimed automatic cannon. This had an unfortunate effect. One of the MiG pilots dropped his bombs early, and that fell directly onto a biffle parked near one of the large steel pipelines, which took water from Calque to Ovambulant. Eleven members of 8th South African Infantry, 8th Sai, were sitting near the buffle eating their lunch under the trees. This was a massive 250-kilogram bomb that blasted the buffle and the trees and killed the eleven men instantly. This was also the SADF's worst single loss after 23 years of fighting this long border war in southern Angola. Along with Lieutenant Meiring, it meant that 12 men had died on this day. Seven of the dead were only 19 years old. Four were 20. The oldest was a veteran of 23. But the MiGs didn't get off scot-free. They'd broken the rule of a single wave, and because they'd come back for a second attempt, the hand-aimed old-school South African 20mm cannon damaged one of the MiGs so seriously that it crashed returning to Kohama. The pilot ejected safely. Hannes Nortmann was lying in an ambulance being treated for his neck and hand injuries alongside these eight side vehicles. Then the doctor decided to move them on for further treatment moments before the MiGs bombed. Another lucky escape for one of South Africa's most courageous soldiers. The SADF survivors of this MiG attack explained how it seemed to carry on forever. Chaos as the men tried to dig their way under their vehicles. Some could see the MiG pilots they were flying so low, peppering the SADF with their cannon. Hein Grunewald, one of the ASI soldiers, said simply, It wasn't a nice sight which is another of those laconic understatements made by soldiers who have seen enough not to exaggerate. Recrimination followed. The Times of London reported that military balance shifts against Pretoria, while the Washington Post said the nightmares of Pretoria's generals are coming true, which, whatever you think of journalists, were accurate depictions of the real situation. It was a political disaster for the National Party. For Commandant Mike Muller, it was something more. It was a failure of the air defence units. The anti-aircraft crews had been too slow, and he reported this officially afterwards. The SADF had broken their own operational rule, and 11 men paid for it. There was always a mobile air operations team, or MOAT, officer, along with an SA Air Force Intelligence officer, stationed at critical points in forward positions during an operation like this. 
But there were no Moats stationed at Kalkwe, nor around Tajipa, so warnings of enemy plane movements were channeled along ordinary ops lines, and that meant up to five minutes could elapse before the warnings reached the anti-aircraft teams. It's another of these hindsight comments from officers that were spot on. It was another example of how breaking the basic rules of operational warfare leads to casualties. This is not finger-pointing, just pointing out basic logic. As we all know, war has rules, you break them, you pay. Muller had a much bigger problem. The MiGs had destroyed one of the earth ramps leading to the road at the top of the dam. A dozen olifants were now trapped on the Angolan side of the Kaneni River. What happened next is for next episode. Please rate the podcast on iTunes. It helps raise the visibility of the series. Or you can direct message me on Twitter at Des Latham. Until next, tot sins. Thank you.